Welcome to Living Word Bible Church, a lovely place for families where we have a passion to sing great songs to Jesus and where sound Bible teaching is central in home groups and in preaching at Sunday services. Living Word Bible Church, teaching the Bible verse by verse. Well, welcome those there who've joined us live and obviously everybody here too. And we're picking up where we left off on Friday, where we looked at the crucifixion, Good Friday. Now we're looking at the resurrection. It's a part of the package. And I want to just spend some time with you looking at that passage in John's Gospel. But we have, and this is what's great about uh, the events of Jesus' life. I don't know if you're aware, in history, many of the things that we know about historical characters come to us by both literature written hundreds of years after the event and a sparsity of such literature. Often, of many key players in history, we only have uh, the account of one historian and that many years after the events. With the Gospels, we have at least four accounts, four independence accounts, and in fact, We'll do some of this a bit later as we look at the authenticity and reliability of Scripture. Is Even with the four accounts, there's, there's many people who've inputted to that. So it's not just even four accounts. We have multiple eyewitness accounts that are assembled together. You remember what Luke said when he began his gospel? Many have undertaken to write about these things. And so he's doing also having researched thoroughly researched, used uh, sources available to him. So in those four Gospels, we have the input of many, many, many different people, an accumulation of memory and the transition of information, both orally and written. And so we're looking at something for, for which happened in history 2,000 years ago, for which there's much more attestation for that event than for almost every other historical event of antiquity that we know. It's why people still talk about the gospel. It's why there's still legitimate sources of, of study and, and, and exploration amongst the highest of uh, members of the academic world. Hey, so these are real pieces of literature, real information that, that we're looking at together. It's the resurrection. We're going to look at all four accounts. Naturally, we want to just try and bring each of these accounts into this one uh, account that we're looking at in John's Gospel. So let me begin there in John chapter 20. We're near the end of John's account of Jesus' life and, and this is the finale almost. Early on the first day of the week. The Jewish week ended on Saturday with the Sabbath, uh, followed the pattern of creation. And so the first day is Sunday, and we said on Friday, this is why Christians worship on Sunday rather than on Saturday. It's because it's the day that Jesus came back from the dead and he became established in tradition more, more than instruction. So there isn't actually an instruction in Scripture for us to worship on the Lord's Day, the first day. It's more a tradition. It's a tradition of the early church. So you th it's, a, it's a tradition of the disciples. And so you think it's a good Tradition. On the first day of the week, it's early, it's very early. 
most probably still dark. It's the, it's the third day, we're Friday, the first Saturday, and then early Sunday mornings. It's the third day, and the disciples, whatever else is going on in their minds just now, they are aware it's the third day. They would be aware. Not quite sure what to expect, but they knew this. Look, let me give you an example. Matthew, Matthew says this in his gospel. This is a, Matthew, one of the disciples of Jesus. Okay, uh, he says, from, the, from that time on, Jesus began to explore, explain rather, to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So the disciples knew something. We said last time that they just would have put this to Jesus' enigmatic uh, phraseology. He's always using these kinds of phrases, wasn't he? Speaking about things they didn't understand. So they most probably had no idea what he was talking about, but they knew this, that there was something significant about the third day. And so there must have been some expectancy of something peculiar, different. Maybe they were waiting for some news. And so John introduces us to this day. It's the third day. Luke 24 tells us about a couple of the disciples on that Sunday who were traveling from the capital to Emmaus, some 12k away. And, and, and even amongst them, there's this, there's this chatter, chit-chat, about the significance of the third day. They're anticipating something. Listen to them, this is what they say. They were talking with Jesus. They had no idea it was Jesus. But we had hoped, he said, they said to Jesus as they were walking with him, not knowing who he was, we'd hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, the two of them say, it's the third day since all this took place. Can you see? The disciples knew something significant may occur, or there is something significant about the third day. So John introduces you, 20 verse 1, early on the first day of the week, day 3. While it was still dark, very early, still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. That's John's account, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. We know the doctor took a different approach. Again, look, when we look at the four Gospels, three of them are called the Synoptic Gospels, meaning seeing together. So Mark, Matthew, and Luke have a general similar pattern to the way they present Jesus' story. John stands out differently. So if you ever hear that term synoptic, it's talking about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, the three that see together that are very similar in style, if you like. John stands out. So in the synoptics, Doctor, the doctor Luke wrote one of those, and this is what he says. And he, look, you can imagine being a doctor, he's much more interested in persons, isn't he? He's much more interested in detail. And so, look, this is how he puts it it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and others. How many people went there to anoint Jesus' body? More than four. More than four. But here's a question. If more than four, take six or seven ladies, went to the tomb, why is John saying, John 20 verse 1, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb? Because 
what does, what's John making it sound like? There was only one person who went to the tomb. And so if you're now a critic, imagine Catherine, you can imagine Catherine as a critic, you know, unwilling to believe or, uh, the testimony of the Gospels. If you're a critic, what's your objection here? Inconsistency. How can you silly Christians believe, have any confidence in these ancient writings? They couldn't even agree amongst themselves. One guy says there's one, another guy says there's probably six or seven. I mean, you can hardly confuse, can you, one and seven? I mean, have you ever done that in the shop? You know, when they say it's, it's, it's seven dollars and you hand over one? I mean, you just want to work with it. You know, so uh, can you see why uh, there's contextual criticism is the term here, why it could quite easy, we could quite easily be criticised for trusting in documents that can't even agree amongst themselves? What would you say to that? Have a think about that one. What would you say to that? Hey, you can't even trust the credibility of the detail. One guy says seven, roughly. Another guy says one. What would you say to that? Someone having, what would you say to that? Because this is the credibility of your faith. And if you're sitting there thinking, who cares? You're silly. Because if your faith isn't real, then you're absolutely silly. I mean, who wants to believe in nonsense? Yeah, good man. Exactly. You get two eyewitnesses seeing a single event. They both tell you from their own perspective. So here's the first thing it tells you. When, the first thing it tells me is this actually makes him more credible because if I was making this up and if I was getting together with John and if I was Luke, I'd say, hey, what have you put? We're going to make this sound right. What would you do if you'd committed a crime and, and you were trying to hide it? What would you say to your, uh, assay, uh, the guy you, you do it with? Who's he, who's he, who's he called? Accomplice. Accomplice, thank you. Uh, accomplice. Accomplice. Uh, is that right? I can't think straight when I'm standing here. Accomplish, yeah? What would you say to him? You know, before you go, when they ask you and they say, what happened to him? How did you find the body? What would you say to your mate? You'd say, this is how you say it. And you wouldn't get the number of people on the scene wrong, would you? <coughs> Sorry, I need a drink. <coughs> you wouldn't, would you? The very fact that John... <coughs> John was written at the end of the synoptics. So Luke wrote before John. John had access to Luke's writing. For John to write and only mention one person, and he's trying to uphold the credibility, either he's drunk, or the very fact that he was prepared to single out this one person suggests that there's no colluding going here, going on in the formation of the text. Why then? Okay, so, so I think Graham got it. Why does he only mention one? Here's, here's an explanation. Lee Strobel, you may have read his book, The Case for Christ. <laughs> He's got several of these books now. Another one of these books is A Case for Miracles, and he writes a brilliant explanation of why. And look, have a listen to this. Research shows that many apparent discrepancies between the Gospels can be explained by the standard composition, compositional techniques that Greco-Roman biographers typically used in that era. Okay? One common technique is called literary spotlighting. Remember, it's important in, in, in biblical examination, literary spotlighting. So, for example, 
in a theatrical performance, there are many, many multiple actors on stage at any one time, but the lights go out and a spotlight shines on only one of them. Generally, I saw this Friday, we were at the local church and we sort of played there and there were lots of people on stage and it was dark, but there were spotlights only on one person. Because, and you know that other actors are on stage, he says, but you can't see them because the spotlight is focused in one person. And what, what they're saying is in that Greco-Roman style of writing, if you were trying to emphasize your story, there may have been seven people, but you only talk about the one because it's their perspective that is significant to your version of that story. And can you see? You can see. And this happens with every criticism aimed at the scriptures. None of them stand. The only people who maintain these criticisms are people who are willfully choosing by choice to discard the credibility of them. So just an example for you to be aware that hey, hey, our faith is based on substance, tangible realities, eyewitness accounts. So John is aware there's other women. Of course he's aware. He, they were, he already had access to Luke when he wrote his writings. He's aware, but he focuses on Mary. Now, look, Passover has just happened, so they weren't allowed, to be, in order not to be ceremonially unclean, according to Jewish stipulations about dead bodies, they stayed away. You can imagine that in itself must have been some form of agony, particularly for these ladies. I mean, those of us who have lost people, what do we want to do when, when someone's died? Even if we weren't there, what is it that we want to do when, when we hear of the news of their death? We want to go and be near the body, don't we? It provides some comfort. These ladies want to be near Jesus' body. I mean, there's work to do. They haven't prepared his body properly. They want to do that. But really, at the heart of this, they just want to be near his body. And so they go to the tomb early, the very first opportunity, the earliest they could wake up possibly on that day, and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. I saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. You didn't move these things very easily. These were huge stones. They would have taken more than one man to do the task. Not only that, there were guards stationed to ensure this kind of thing couldn't occur. And so you can imagine, you know, look, I'm not suggesting women are any less uh, brave than men, but this is a culture where it's very man-orientated. Uh, and for a woman, there's particular vulnerabilities, and to be out dark, you know, just women by themselves, you know, it, it was a vulnerable situation. So there's, there's fear, obviously, there's uncertainty, amplified by grief. And so they just leave the scene, we're told. So they came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. The very fact that these women are running tells you that this is... Uh, this is some kind of emergency because you didn't run in those days. And I look, you may, if you, if you may see me, I, I run sometimes if I'm late for something. You know, I, I, zap, I zip along quickly and it's acceptable in our, in our culture. I remember visiting Bangladesh when I was uh, 19 for the first time since leaving there as a child. No man or woman runs. Seriously. It's humiliating. If you're an adult, you never run. It's shameful. The fact that these women are running, this is absolute emergency. I mean, there's something crazily wrong. They have, they have no care for anything. 
They're running. They run to Simon Peter and John. Why do you think they? Why do you think they run to those two? The one that decided. Uh, John's writing this. It's his, it's his perspective, and he, he often refers to himself in this third-person sense. You know, the one that Jesus loved. It's him. Okay. Okay. Why do you think that she runs to them, to Peter and John? Yeah, they were. They were. The, they, they knew everything. They were the ones who were always in with Jesus. If you, wanted any, if you wanted to know anything about Jesus, you spoke to John or Peter, because he, he, he was the, the, the bouncer, wasn't he? He, he was the, who protected these three. So they run to Peter and to John, and notice what they tell them. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. What's, the, what's, the first, what's their first conclusion? Yeah, vandalism. Theft of his body. They have taken the Lord out of his tomb. We don't know where they've put him. Now, here's the guys listening to this situation. Let me ask you, you'll need to just put yourself as a man into that culture. What were they thinking when these women said this? They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. Look, what is, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. Someone's stolen him. What are the guys thinking? Yes. Exactly what I think every time I listen to... No, I'm just joking, Warren. They think they're crazy. What, what, what do they think? Because this is a sad reality of that time, and I'm sure it exists still in some cultures today. A woman's, woman's word held no value. Seriously. And so if a woman came to... So if these women came and tell you Jesus' body is gone, it's gone stolen, Peter's thinking, goodness sake, what are they, what are they on? Really? There's no way they believe a word of it. You know, they obviously can't even figure it out. There's so many of them, and they can't even agree between the seven of them, probably. You know, and so, so, so Peter and John do the obvious thing. You know, they're the hot shots. You know, if anything's happened to Jesus' body, it's only happened when we say it's happened. Okay? You know, they have, they have to verify. No one will believe anything. And no joke, even if one of the other disciples had said, said something, Peter and John would not have believed it. Because for them, they had to know. They always knew everything. And unless they were able to verify Jesus' body was there, wasn't there, then he was there. And so Peter and the other disciples, verse 3, how am I doing for time, Matt? I don't know how long I've been going for. When you start nodding, I'll stop, okay? Okay, so Peter and John and the other disciples started out for the tomb. So they head for the tomb. They need, they need male witness, first-hand male witness testimony. This is what they need. First-hand male testimony witness uh, testimony. I'm assuming Peter's had a bit more fish during his course of his existence than John because John outruns him. Okay, and I'm assuming it's to do with how much fish he eats. Okay? Not all fish is good for you, so they say. So look, so they came running, to the, to run, running and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, they both came. Okay? They entered, oh, I'm on the wrong page here. Let me start in verse 4. They both were running, but the disciple, the other disciple outran Peter. He reached the tomb first. He, it's John, bent over, looked in, inside, in at the strips of linen lying there, but it did not go in. Why? Pardon? Yeah, it may well have been waiting for Peter. Yeah, I think so. And, it, and he's waiting for Peter. Why? Because? Of course, he's going to go in there. 
And look, and this is, again, to me, when I read the scriptures, they are self-authenticating because the way they present information is true to life. I've, I've been in that situation. No one ever been to a tomb and the blood body's gone. It's not something that happens to me every day either. I've been in a situation where someone's broke into my property. I didn't just run in there. You know, you know <laughs> I was too afraid to go in because they may have still been there. And, and can you see this has authenticity? Here's John. There's no way he's going to go in there. Okay? He needs, some, he needs a guy who doesn't care. Peter doesn't care, does he? Peter is the most, you know, he's, he's a rough man's man, isn't he? So he refuses to go in. There's, n- there's no telling what's going on here. No telling at all. One thing they do know, they would have known. And this is partly why they would have discarded uh, the women's testimony. Is that there was... Not only was there a god, remember, and a stone, but it was actually illegal by Roman law to desecrate a tomb. It was illegal. You know, for this to be real, you know, this is the breaking of Roman law. So John notices the linen lying there straight away. What 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 is that saying? You're reading this account. He says he refuses to go in, but he could tell the linen is there. Let me tell you what linen is like. Linen is like gold. Okay? It's like robbing somebody's house and leaving the wallet on the coffee table right in front of the door. Okay? If your house has just been robbed and your wallet is there on the coffee table open with $50 notes on it, okay, you're, you're instinctively thinking, this isn't a robbery, is it? Oh, they're pretty dim, <laughs> dim thieves. So John already knows there's something peculiar here. Why is linen a very expensive material? If you're robbing this tomb, why have you left something expensive behind? Peter comes, verse 6, then, then some Peter who was behind him arrived. What do you think? Without even reading the verse. Don't put it up there yet, please, Matt. What do you think Peter did when he got to the tomb? He didn't even stop, did he? <laughs> you can imagine the Peter. There wasn't even a door there. The only time Peter stopped is when he hit his head on the other side of the tomb. Okay? He just went in. It's, it's, it's how he operated. Remember when Jesus walked to him on the, on the water in a storm and all the disciples are feeding? It's a, <coughs> it's, it's a ghost. What does Peter do? The nutcase steps out of the boat. I mean, would you, seriously, who here would walk out of a boat in the middle of a storm if you saw a ghost? Seriously. I mean, this guy is crazy. He's absolutely crazy. Right? Okay, so if you're crazy, there's hope of you being a church leader one day. Okay? Because he qualified to be a church leader. He was the greatest church leader in history until Paul. Okay? So Simon Peter went straight in, into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there. Simon would have known somebody has left a wallet behind full of cash now. As well as a burial cloth, and it gets more peculiar, that had been around Jesus' head. So Jesus was covered in strips of linen around his body and a separate piece around his head. The cloth that had been around his head, okay, was folded by itself, separate from the linen. Okay, so your house now seems to be broken in. Not only 
is, there, is your wallet open with cash left on the coffee table? But someone's hoovered your room. Someone's put the vacuum around. Because you know when you left there, there were French fries on that floor because you were rushing out after your McDonald's lunch, okay? Someone's hoovered up, okay? <laughs> now what are you thinking about this rubber? Okay, so, so something peculiar here. Somebody has, amidst the process of stealing Jesus, desecrating the temple, stealing Jesus' body, knocking out the, the guards, moving away the stone, taking his body, and then stopping, okay, and taking his, the linen and folding them up neatly and laying them down. I think I've got a picture of that, have I, somewhere? What's going on here? Can you see, this is like nothing anybody would expect. And again, look, this is something that adds some credibility to, these, to the authenticity of these accounts. Because, look, you have myths in ancient history. There are a lot of writings of myths, okay? okay? One of the things about myths and legends is that the detail written about them it is both fantastical, but obviously this is fantastical, but it's, it's sparse with details of precision. Legends are documents, in, uh, by and large, broad sweeps of information. They lack critical, important detail. This is one of those details, okay? Could easily be missed. You may almost wonder why somebody even bothered detailing it. The fact that they have suggests that this is an eyewitness account, that they are detailing something they've seen, that they don't understand what it means, but they are at least detailing it. It adds some credibility that we're dealing with authentic material, because here's the issue. Here's the issue for, 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 for Peter, and John looks in later, is that whatever's happened here, this is not a desecration of, of a burial place. And it certainly can't be a mere stealing of Jesus' body because the only people who'd want to steal Jesus' body are who? There's only two groups of people who'd want Jesus' body gone. Pardon? Yes. Sorry. Uh, I, think, I don't think I put that question over very well. There's only two people. Now, let me put it like, let me put it like this. Uh, now, I'm going to take that question back entirely. We'll leave that. That doesn't work, and I can't follow through in my mind just now. Okay, so Jesus' body is gone. Luke 24, he went away wondering to himself what some form of faith. He believes something has happened. Peter wanders away, and it seems like the two have split up. John has gone ahead. He's excited about his understanding that something unique has happened here, perhaps the resurrection. Okay, we're going to look at it in a second. Peter goes away wondering to himself what had happened. Of the two, who was, who was more likely to believe in something impossible? Peter. Of the two, who goes away believing something impossible hasn't happened? Peter. He can't believe something impossible has happened. And I, I, I was thinking about this. What do you think? Of the two, Peter's the one who's most likely to believe in something impossible, the resurrection, for example. But he's the one who goes away, he won't believe it. Why do you think that is? Okay, although there is a little bit of physical, but he wants to see the body, actually body. He may, yeah, he was that type, that's a good point. Anything else? Yeah. I think that's it, Graham. 
he denied Jesus three days ago, okay, but at least Jesus is dead. Meaning, we can forget about that one and move on, can't we? I don't, I don't think Peter is that excited about Jesus being alive. Because if he's alive, what's he going to want to do? Or you. Okay? You're out. You're out. Okay? You're out. Get out of here. If Jesus is alive, Peter's in for it. I don't think Peter wants to believe. Yeah. And, and I think this shows something about the skepticism towards Christianity that we see in our world. You know, almost, almost invariably, the reason people do, don't believe in Jesus is because, is because they won't believe in Jesus. You do realize that, don't you? That there's, there's a predisposition that we have, for some at least, is that we don't want to believe in Jesus. And I think what's going on here with Peter is, is he can't believe. Look, Luke 22, woman, I don't know him. Man, I am not. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. He can't believe, he won't believe. But verse 8, finally John goes in, he reaches inside the tomb, he went inside, he saw and believed. For John, there is no reason for him not to believe. He hasn't done anything to let Jesus down. And for John, the evidence is irrefutable. Jesus' body's gone. This doesn't look like a crime scene. And he kept talking about today. He kept talking about... He believes. I don't think he believes that Jesus is standing outside. Rather, he believes Jesus is probably ascended and gone back to heaven. I think that's what's going on here. It's a primitive faith in the resurrection. Yes, Jesus isn't there because God has taken his body. God has taken him away. And I think that's all he's thinking. I don't think he's thinking anything more. And so, for example, uh, John himself tells us. This is his, so remember John's writing this? He tells us. Because he's telling us he believed, and then he explains himself later. This is what he says. Uh, if I can find a verse. He goes, verse 9. They still did not understand from Scripture, he's talking about himself here, that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So John is telling us, he goes, I went inside, and then I realized God had taken him. But then he explains, but I didn't understand that there was a resurrection here. I hadn't figured out this was what the Testament uh, prophesied and what Jesus meant. Because, for example, Psalm 16 tells us, you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. I'm going to try and finish soon, because I'm sure my time must be running out. So he comes to a primitive faith of the resurrection, but not the one that we understand it to be a physical resurrection of Jesus who's going to show himself. Verse 10, Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. So what's happened? The group of women went to the disciples. Okay? The two disciples came back, and it seems like Mary trailed behind them. And this time, I don't think John is just just focusing on one individual because the story doesn't lend itself to there being more than one person now. It seems as though Mary has come back by herself. Okay, for wanting to be near Jesus. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw the two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. They asked the woman, why are you crying? She enters into a dialogue with them. Why does she enter into a dialogue with these men? What does she think? And this tells you something about angels. 
Yeah. You have to understand that. They're dressed in white, but that people do that, you know. But she thinks they're two guys. You know, she isn't aware whatsoever there's something supernatural going on here. And it tells you something about angels. This is what the Bible says, that we entertain angels unaware because angels appear to humans almost always, invariably, in what form? They look like you. Seriously. And so these look like two ordinary guys, dressed differently, but she doesn't care about that, it seems. Okay? And then, look, she converses with them like ordinary people. They have taken away my Lord. So she's not blaming them. They have taken away the Lord, she says. And I don't know where they have put him. They've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they put him. So she's still running with this. Verse 14, at this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. So finally, we're assuming Jesus in his resurrected body was around this area this whole time. Okay, he finally steps to the spotlight as he were. Mary's there, she's conversing with these two strangers, but she doesn't blame them for Jesus' body disappearing. But nevertheless, she holds to her position that someone has stolen the body. So at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. Explain that one. She saw Jesus standing there. We assume it's quite close proximity. It's most likely light. I don't think it's dark by now. A considerable amount of time has gone past here, okay? Maybe an hour or two. This isn't, we're not talking seconds. We're talking long periods of time here, okay? She wants, she can't recognize him. He's standing there in front of her. He speaks to her. She can see him. Okay, she's crying, but it's absurd, it's absurd to suggest her tears are obscuring the view. When was the last time you failed to recognize your partner, okay, or your best friend who speaks to you just because you were crying? It's pathetic. That's not a reason, okay? Okay? Explain to me the reason then. Why can't she recognize him? Pardon? Yes, he's onto the answer there. Uh, a resurrected body. Resurrected body. Can you see his point? What's your point? Because resurrected bodies... So, let me ask you, let me go one step back. How many people were resurrected during Jesus' earthly ministry? Uh, sorry, and, if you, and this is a trick question. Okay, how many, I'll ask it again. How many people were resurrected by Jesus during his earth? It's a trick question, so. Yes, but we don't. No, it's a trick question, you see, so you're falling into the trap. It's a trick question. How many people did Jesus resurrect during his ministry? None. Why do I? None. He only raised people from the dead. And they're two different things. A resurrection is different from being raised from the dead. When you were raised from the dead, what happened? What, what, kind of, what kind of life did you get back? You got your life back. You got your body back. With all the ailments which would die. We know that Lazarus died. You know, so did, all the, so did the little girl that Jesus raised. So Jesus never resurrected a person during his ministry. He raised the dead. He is the very first resurrection. In fact, Paul argues the reason we have hope there's a resurrection is not because of Lazarus. It's because of Jesus. Jesus is the only person in the history of the world that has been resurrected and that gives us hope that there is a resurrection. John does, Lazarus doesn't give us any hope because you just die again. 
Can you see? Jesus is the first resurrection. And here's the thing about the resurrection, is that the resurrection does something to you. It fundamentally alters your DNA and biological construction. You are not the same. Morag, he's going to look way better. Okay? Way better. <laughs> Yes, you are. Thank you. You are. Yes, absolutely. You are. We are a shadow. Yeah, I hate to say, Peter, but you are a shadow of the handsome Adam. Yeah, a shadow. Okay? <laughs> and that is a reality. But a resurrected body has the perfection of Adam and has a unique aspect about it. It's better than Adam's. It's a whole new form of flesh. In fact, 1 Corinthians tells us this is only a small sample. It was too long to read. So it will be, uh, so, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead? The body that was sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And it goes on further, talking about there's different types of flesh. Here's, here's the reality. Here's the wonderful thing. If you're sitting there with wrinkles, Look, even I have wrinkles. Look, there. Okay? If you're sitting there with wrinkles, I'm trying to not to look because I'm going to offend somebody here. Okay? If you're sitting there with wrinkles, you won't have them long. Because a resurrected body is, is an entirely new structure. Okay? Entirely new. It can do amazing things. What can a resurrected body do when it comes across a wall? Walk through it. What can a resurrected body do when it comes to food? It can consume it. What can a resurrected body do when he wants to go from point A to point B? Okay, this is a brilliant body. It, it, it has both physical qualities and spiritual qualities. It can transcend space-time at will. Okay? And, and here's the thing for Abby. I'm going off on a tangent, I know it looks different. Okay? The reason Mary can't recognize Jesus is because he looks different. You're going to look different when you're resurrected. Okay? Okay. And I'm just going to move on, Matt, very quickly to verse 15. Woman, he said, Why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. She thinks he's a completely different fellow. So however handsome we may be in that state, it has had no impact on Mary's understanding. Okay? She still thinks he's a God. And so Jesus finally, he's almost playing with it, isn't he? You know, in not revealing himself to her. And, but he decides now finally to stop her anguish, to stop her pain. And he does something. Here's the first thing. Not only do resurrected bodies look different, they sound different. Because when he spoke to her, he didn't recognize her voice. If you came to me in the dark, Peter, I still know it's you. Because I can recognize the, uh, you know, the, your, your voice. Okay? Intonations of your voice. Mary can't even recognize Jesus' voice. But when Jesus says this, Jesus said to her, Mary. What's her response? Jesus says to her, Mary. So just one further word. It's now a name. Okay? Okay? A noun. 
Okay? She turns towards him and says in Aramaic, Rabboni, teacher. So Jesus says one word to her and she now recognizes it's him. Why? Because here's the thing about resurrected bodies. They sound different, they look different, but what do they retain? And what will you retain? Character. Personality. You see, Mary doesn't hear her name. She experiences her name. Only Jesus ever spoke Mary's name quite like that. Mary. Mary. Okay? Jesus spoke to her in a way that only he ever spoke. And so finally... My time is up. Finally, Mary comes to faith. In fact, she's the first person to come to authentic faith in the resurrected Jesus. John's faith was still primitive at this stage. Okay? But for Mary, she sees that the resurrection wasn't some merely some Jesus going to his father. She sees that the resurrected was the raising to physical life and a new life, not like Lazarus a new life, and she has faith and confidence in him. She believes, and John tells us. Hey, here's the wonderful thing about Mary, and for all the derogative manner in which that culture saw women, again, this is another thing that authenticates the Bible for me, because if you're trying to sell this story, you don't have women as a part of it. Seriously. You, you keep them out of it, because they're, 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 they are... They are unvalued in a society, but the gospel has women at the center of it. In fact, Mary forever will be the very first being in the history of the universe to see the resurrected Jesus. Wow. Tell me that doesn't do something for, for the, the value of women. Let me leave you with this then. Hey, do you know, to date, there is not a single piece of literature in the history of the world that challenges the authenticity of that account of Jesus' resurrection. And you may be sitting there thinking, well, why would there be? Why would there be? Why would there be? I mean, this is a question I asked wrongly earlier. What two groups had a vested interest, okay, for refuting this document. What two groups? Two groups of people had a vested interest for refuting this document. And who had power? Who are they? The Jewish people and the Roman people, the authorities. Both of them had power. And both of them, for 300 years, well, one of them, but still to some degree, but one of them, at least for 300 years, was trying to stamp it out by physical, lethal force. And here's these people claiming that their leader is resurrected from the dead. What would they have done? What would this authority have done if they had any evidence to do it? What would they have done? They would either produce the body or written about it. They would have released an authoritative text, multiple authoritative texts, because they had the power to do it, okay, that, that, that vilified this story, that quashed this story, that robbed it of his authenticity. And you would find those today if they existed. There's not a single piece of document in all of the world that refutes one iota 
of that text of scripture. And I said to you on Friday, that text of scripture has fragments dating back to within the lifetime of the companions of John who wrote it. Hey Christian, there's something to be said about what you believe. It's real. And second thing, that means that Jesus is real. That means he is who he claimed to be. For someone to suggest that he is God makes him a madman. But for someone to suggest that he's God and to do what only God could do, not just in to other people, but to do it to himself, to be publicly executed and to publicly rise and to prove it, means he's God. This Jesus is God. And what is the only response to him? What is the only fitting response to him? Worship him. Worship him. Why is Christianity still alive today? Because it's real. It's real. Worship him. Because he said that we're all going to stand before him one day to give an account. Be sure that you worship him now so that when we stand before him, we can, like with Mary, be welcomed by him as his ally, not as his enemy.